Beyond Synth, Season 7, Sequence Commencing in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Hey there, welcome to the show. This is episode 198 of Beyond Synth, and I am your host, Andy Last. That's right, we are nearing episode 200, which means that it would probably be a good time for me to start figuring out what that is going to be, because (laughs) I don't have a proper plan. So uh, I'm going to think about that. The schedule of the show in the next few weeks is going to be a little all over the place. And when I say two weeks, I technically mean a month because Outland Toronto is happening July 6 and 7. As you know, we've talked about it on the show. If you want, you can go to SoundCloud and listen to the Outland Toronto playlist, which is episodes of Beyond Synth from over the years featuring the artists who are going to be performing at Outland Toronto. So you can hear interviews with uh, Dana Jean Phoenix and Haley Stewart and Parallels, Michael Oakley, Time Cop, FM Attack, the most recent one. And yeah, it's going to be fun. So I have to do a bunch of prep leading up to Outland uh, on July 6th and 7th. So there are going to be a few weeks of Beyond Synth where we don't have regular episodes, but we are going to continue to do high fives. And what I might do to satiate you people that just need the Beyond Synth, I might do two high fives a week with guest DJs. So that way there will still be Beyond Synth to uh, carry you through your week and you'll still hear from Marco and Neon Fox and I think I might invite some other DJs to come and pick five songs of their choice for the episode so that should be fun so look let's get the show started we got Baron Von Luxury and Luxury on the show today he goes by two names I was really excited to talk to him I listened to his music a long time ago before I even discovered the synthwave scene because he was never really part of the synthwave scene and uh, I think he is a super talented guy and we had a great time Talk. We're going to listen to a bunch of tracks first, and then we'll uh, we'll get to my conversation with Baron Von Luxury. But first, here is a cool track from Star Cassette. This is Summer Nights.
And that was Summer Nights by Star Cassette. And that was brought to you by my awesome Patreon supporters. There's Chris Dance, the King of the Pattersons. And closely behind the King of the Pattersons uh, is Mike Shima, who is incredibly generous. You know, Mike and Chris Dance are very generous people, and I want to uh, thank them for being very loyal Patreon supporters. And there's also William Stewart and Jose Arbello. You guys are cool. Now look, there's also another retro thing coming up. A live charity release uh, from Retro Reverb Records. And they're doing a thing. It's a live event on the 26th of June. 1900 hours to 21 hours GMT. What's GMT again? That's British time, right? Anyway, they're going to be live uh, broadcasting the whole event, and there's going to be six live performances from the album and interviews with the artists. And I did chat with them briefly about doing something, but then I realized that same day, I just realized this now, this is because I'm incredibly disorganized, that FM84 is playing in Toronto that exact same day. Because I think I was messaging with the the guys from Retro Reverb Records about possibly joining the live stream or maybe... You know, streaming it from my Twitch account uh, simultaneously and and maybe adding some commentary or something. But I'm not sure I can do that now because I'll be prepping all day to go see FM84. So maybe in the next few weeks we'll figure out some uh, other way I can be involved with that. I haven't uh, actually figured it out yet. But uh, don't forget to check that out. Put that on your calendars. Retro Reverb Records, the 26th of June. You can check out their Facebook page and you'll see the uh, the post there so you can remind yourself to check it out. The guest features include Time Cop 1983, Nina, Sunglasses Kid, Kid Neon, Wolf Club, Affirmation, Megan McDuffie. So there's uh, lots of cool reasons to tune into that. So I hope you... Uh, I'll, and maybe I'll speak more about it uh, in the coming weeks. And uh, yeah, so how about this? Let's listen to some more music. Uh, this is a track from Mind Machine. Brought to you uh, by my awesome Patreon supporters. Well, there's Jacob Wick with the 4488. Cool dude. And then there's City Hunter with the 42. And Lucas Ceballos with the 2666. I hope you enjoyed your birthday shout out, which was probably like two or three months late from last week's episode. But hey, man, I'm not a very organized guy. I never pretended to be and I never will be. But look. Let's listen to this track now. This is Mind Machine with the track Clouds of Doubt.
Clouds of Doubt by Mind Machine. And that was brought to you by my awesome Patreon supporters. Well, there's Hugh Hefner with the 26. Hi, Hugh Hefner. And uh, what else? And then the $25 Club, we got Clint Dowling, Honeybeard, and Tim Carlton. Thank you all for supporting Beyond Synth. And just to remind you guys again about Outland, uh, don't forget about Outland, Toronto, happening July 6th and 7th. If you haven't got tickets to that and you are in the area or are going to be in the area, uh, go get some tickets, man, and go. It's going to be a good time. I even had some damn shirts printed up, although I feel like I've kind of promised them to everybody, so this is going to be a money-losing endeavor, I think. (laughs) Like a lot of things I do. (laughs) Oh, and I still need voice clips from you guys, okay? So, as we're getting closer to episode 200, I was hoping to have some people send me voice clips, whether questions or comments, that I can play on the show. So, if you want to hear your voice on the show, send me a voice clip. 
to beyondsynth at gmail.com. Record yourself talking, and I will uh, put it in the show. Question, comment, whatever. I don't care. It's all good. And uh, do it, because that is something I would like you to do. And what else is going on right now? Oh, it's E3 right now. Of course, as I'm recording this, I'm recording this Sunday night, so I haven't seen a lot of the announcements. Sunday night has only been the Microsoft press conference. Whoop, just dropped my pen. Uh, which was there, I guess, in Bethesda. But you know, man, I love Skyrim, so I don't really care about these other announcements until they announce the next Skyrim game, which they aren't going to do this year, so who cares? But look, well, how about this? How about we listen to another track, and then we'll talk a bit more about that. Um, what do we have here? Ooh, I've got a request from Patreon supporter Tim Carlton. Hey, we just mentioned him. He wants to hear Love Top by Starcadian. And here's how I feel about requests. I always grant them. So here is Love Top by Starcadian. <laughs> Oh, 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 
so stay with me We can dance to the was Starcadian with the track Love Top, a request from Mr. Tim Carlton, but it was also brought to you by my awesome Patreon supporters in the $25 Club. There's Emilio Astavez, Kempson, and Martin Larby. You guys are awesome. And I gotta say this, I've said this every E3 and nothing has changed. I have no interest in cinematic trailers for games and I don't know why people get excited about them. Every time I see a thing where people are posting a trailer and like, oh, this game looks great and it's a movie scene, I don't know what you're getting excited about because it's not the game. And furthermore, if it is a movie scene, then we're years away from there being an actual game. I mean, think about Cyberpunk. Everyone's so excited right now because they just released another cinematic trailer for Cyberpunk. Now, it was featuring Keanu Reeves, so it was funny. But at the end of the day, it's gameplay that matters. Like, I get excited when I see gameplay, which is why I enjoy Nintendo presentations. I know they don't do E3 anymore, but they do those videos where it's just like people from Nintendo talking in front of a white screen about their upcoming games. But I like that so much better because I always find Nintendo really focuses on just explaining what the game is. I mean, they released a 20-minute trailer for Mario Maker 2 last month. And that trailer was just 20 minutes long just explaining the different tools in the game and what you can do with them. And to me, that was like a cool trailer because I'm like, oh yeah, that seems fun. Like, I know how I'm going to play this game. But when I watch a movie trailer where it shows a cinematic scene and like it, it all looks cool, at the end of the day, if it's not the game, I can't get excited for it. And today, anyways, was the Microsoft and the Bethesda press conference and they were all like movie trailers. So I there's nothing to get excited about. And other than that, my PlayStation 4 fan is getting really loud. I don't know if it's about to die, but that thing sounds like a vacuum cleaner now. Um, but look, let's... uh, (laughs) What is this? Let's listen to another track. This is a cool song. This is Glowline from the album The Line. And, uh, And this is a pretty cool song. This is Star Like You.
And that was Star Like You by Glowline uh, from the album The Line. And that's a pretty cool track. And that was brought to you by my awesome Patreon supporters in the $25 Club. There's Gregorio Franco and Blake Peterson. And uh, what the hell? There's Rachel Buchelman with the 1985 and Murat with the 1984. And uh, you guys are all the best. Thank you very much for supporting Beyond Synth. So what was I just saying? I was talking about my damn PlayStation. Yeah, the fan is so loud. And my, I bought this cheap computer for my wife, okay, because... I have a, a PC that I use for gaming, but it's like, it's not a gaming computer. It was just like the cheapest <laughs> desktop I could find that had a decent video card. So, you know, like it was like a Lenovo, which cost, I think, like $4.99 or something. It's not great, but it has a video card so I can actually play like, you know, my N64 emulator and it can do the GameCube okay. But, you know, I use it mostly to play uh, GoldenEye and retro games and stuff like this. But then what happened was... The, my wife's previous computer, it died. So I gave her my computer to use. But then I, after a while, I was like, oh, I want that computer back because I want it to be a primary computer for playing retro games. I just wanted to set it up and have it all ready to go. So then I went to this secondhand computer store and bought her a cheap computer because all she ever does is go on the internet and do some word processing. So I'm like, you don't need anything that great. So I bought this old used computer for like 150 bucks or something. And, uh, you know, and for the first day, it seemed like, hey, this is going to be okay. And it's not. <laughs> the fucking thing. It just runs so slow. And, like, every time she turns it on, it takes, like, five minutes to get started. And then when you click, like, fucking nothing happens. And so now I got to get another computer there. I always buy cheap things, okay? Like, that's been my life. I always trade in stuff when I no longer need it. And I always buy the cheapest thing possible. And I feel like I always pay the price and never learn my lesson. I do this all the... It's like the story of my life. I've never bought a good sound system. I always buy cheap Bluetooth headphones for when I walk around and they always fucking break and I'm and they always it always ends up being really frustrating. I remember the day I always used to buy cheap portable phones for the house, for the landline, and I've smashed so many phones in my life because there's nothing more frustrating than when those things start to die. And yeah, so I know I don't know what to do. I feel like if I have to buy a decent computer, I might as well just buy myself the computer and then give her back the computer that I took from her in the first place, uh, which I gave to her. Well, whatever. The, the point is, I've got a technical audience, though. Do you guys build computers? Maybe someone can give me some advice and I can just build one. But my budget's really low. My budget is always really low. Anyway, whatever. Look, let's... <laughs> Let's listen to one more track, and then uh, we will talk with Baron Von Luxury. So, how about this awesome track? This is fun pop music. What a weird way to... This is some fun pop music. Uh, this is Kites with Lights from the album The Movies, and, uh, and I really enjoyed this one. This one's called Until the End.
And that was Until the End by Kites with Lights from the album The Movies. And that was brought to you uh, by my awesome Patreon supporters. There's Jimby, Hampus ML, Kenjuru, Chatterack, Mads Baron Christensen, Prophets of Jupiter, and we'll never forget the immortal Chris Celia Lane. And remember, guys, if you want to follow the artists who I feature on the show, if you're on SoundCloud, there's a more info button. If you listen to the shows on YouTube, there's a more info button, and you can have all the links to all the artists featured on the show. And I suggest you go check them out because uh, they all make awesome music, and you should support them. And on that note, now here is my conversation with Baron Von Luxury. All right. Well, I am here with Luxury. How's it going? I'm great. Are we putting on our radio voices now? We certainly are. Hey, fantastic. Well, I've got one too, and it sounds a little something like this. (laughs) Perfect. We're here broadcasting live. With Andy Last. That's right. So you are Blake Robin. Is that correct? That's right. That's my name. That is literally the most research I did. That's that's all you need to know. <laughs> so many years ago, see, I started doing this podcast in about 2013. Yeah. Before that point, before I had found this scene, there were various artists that I came across that satisfied my retro you know, pop, electronic kind of needs before there was this scene that was sort of... um, Is this sort of like post-Drive the movie and that soundtrack? Is that what you you kind of like Kavinsky and all that cultural moment when that kind of happened? Yes, exactly. Like, so there was these um, Masters of the Universe compilations with some artists like uh, Miami Nights 1984 and Laserhawk and stuff. And then there was the Valerie Collective in France with College and uh, Maytelvin, these other people, and the college song was in the movie Drive, and that was one of the things that really inspired the synthwave scene. Anyway, the point of this whole story is, before I discovered any of this stuff, I listened to Baron Von Luxury, because that was uh, a place where I got some of that fix, that retro, fun, pop kind of fix. I think my, my brother found your stuff and, and sent it to me, and I used to listen to... Uh, there's a bunch of songs on that, that one album that like I fucking right. love. I listen to him a lot. So uh, that's basically my way of saying that, uh, yeah, I listened to your stuff a long time ago. I forget when that, what year was... Um... So here's what happened. In 2012, I put that record out. It's called The Last Seduction. It came out on, on Manimal Vinyl. And there are a bunch of videos. I think there were six, maybe seven videos. We did almost a video for every song. You know, that was, I'm super proud of that record. In 2014, I think it was, I started sort of writing the next batch of material and I made kind of a conscious pivot to make it more of a disco centric thing and less of a synth centric thing. At that moment, I actually rebranded. I went from Baron Von Luxury to Luxury. And for the past couple of years, I've been playing in that area, which is much less synthy. And and to finish that point, I, I stripped the internet, basically, of Baron Von Luxury stuff, only because, I don't know, I was just feeling coy. I was just like, I, I want to hide this for a minute. You know, sometimes it's nice when something's a bit rare or, you know, when there isn't ubiquity about it. So rather than have it be on Spotify and iTunes and Apple Music and just, you know, out there on equal footing with everything else, I I took it down. I wanted luxury to have kind of a completely fresh start. So 
fast forward to now, I've, I've put out about nine singles in this new, more disco-centric vein. I guess Marauder is still a touchstone. Giorgio Marauder is still a touchstone for both versions, Luxury and Baron Vaughn. But the other day, I kind of woke up and it felt like the time was right to put it back. So I, I literally just uploaded The Last Seduction, all those songs. I hadn't heard them in years. And I was listening back to them and I was remembering that I'm really proud of them. They're good songs, if I can say so myself. And they're in 2019. It sounds fresh again. It's a, the funny thing about music is that it kind of comes and goes in, in waves. So it's going to be probably by the time this comes out, it'll be back up there on the internet. Um, it's got its own little lane. It's going to be called Baron Von Luxury and Luxury will remain separate. So they'll both, both entities exist. They're both me, but one being called Baron Von Luxury is where all the synth stuff will live. And, you know, the historical record will no longer be expunged like some ousted Russian. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not, I'm going I'm <laughs> to undo. What a metaphor. <laughs> I'm going to undo the whiteout so that uh, Trotsky will be back in the photo next to Lenin. And then Luxury, as it stands now, which is going to probably continue into the future in this more... 70s disco vein that said it's also going to start having more of a synthy vibe i think that chronologically in my luxury retroness i'm catching up to like 1980 maybe 81 now and it's going to start to add the synths that belong and maybe in the future they'll merge i don't know what the future holds that was a very very long yeah. <laughs> i realize i don't even i didn't give you any pauses or breaths to cut away and so it'll probably be a three-minute rant so sorry about that i talk so much on this show so it's nice to hear other people's voices oh boy when i think about it though i almost feel like baron von luxury is the more 70s sounding maybe yeah i don't know i mean the other part of it too which is where it gets confusing and I'm thinking it through and I don't know the answer is that Baron Luxury, it's obviously a bit silly and it was meant to be kind of whimsical. I didn't want luxury to be quite as whimsical, but now I'm just not that precious about it. And I also don't think you can fully control it. I'm realizing mm -hmm. I just, I am who I am. I have the big curly hair and I wear the funny jacket with the rose on it and Baron Von Luxury is silly, but those songs were all about my dead friend. So it's not really silly after all. It's all out of my control. As much as I sit here and I think, okay, I'm going to make this song like this and I'm going to have the cover out like this. At the end of the day, it's just not always what you intended in a good way. Like you're, you aim for something and it turns out slightly different and that's unique and it's out of your control and what people think of it's out of your control. And the songs they like are often the ones that you almost didn't put on the album and the ones that... So there's this whole artistic enterprise for me is an exercise in like understanding the limits of what I can actually control. You know, it ends the second I put it up on the internet. Well... Look at this, man. We're going to we're gonna go through the whole chronology. So I know now you're talking like, oh, it's luxury now and this and that. But I would like to just say that The Last Seduction, there's some songs in here that are very, very good. Just the, the production, they're, they're such great songs, and we're going to listen to some of them. So what we'll probably do is we'll probably just take this in order. So we'll we'll do some Baron, Baron Von Luxury, and then we'll sort of uh, ease into the luxury stuff as the conversation moves. Because I want to play some of my favorite songs on this one, because this uh, I really... I really Really dug this so yeah, i'd love to hear what they are i'm so curious i wonder well I wonder they're all what... the ones you probably 
can guess. I'm not a very... (laughs) When it comes to, like, music I like, very rarely is my opinion, like, some sort of wacky, like, um, you know what I mean? Like, if if ever I tell people what my favorite movies are or music, it's, like, not really very surprising. If I told you my favorite Mortal Kombat character was Scorpion, it's like, that's everyone's favorite character, you know? So... You're you're no edgelord. No, I'm no edgelord. But we're gonna listen right now to The Last Seduction... Now, can I say Baron Von Luxury? Yeah. By Baron Von Luxury. Is this the last seduction? Is this the end of everything? Oh, dear. Is this the last seduction?
And that was The Last Seduction by Baron Von Luxury. And I'm here with Blake right now, the guy who wrote that lovely song. I was just going through because when I had to upload that album so that it could be back on the internet. So I went back through, I had to track it down because, you know, years have gone by and the art files and, you know, just the lyrics, like everything, they're on hard drives and they're kind of scattered throughout the ether. Mm. So I, as I was doing a search on my Mac, I found the voicemail message because this was before iPhone voice memos. I had literally called my phone and left a message on the answering machine to myself with the melody. <laughs> I just found that. I was looking the other day. Here it is. I mean, I don't know if this will translate, but since you've just played the song, I can play it for you. <laughs> sure. Okay. Here it comes. Friday, 12 2005. <laughs> That's me playing the bass line. There's the melody. Oh my god, it's so uh, so real. That's me. So as that's a little snippet of me. I remember hearing that melody. This is 2005. Like that's so crazy. And it took me all the years to turn it into a song to produce it and put it out. But it's really kind of cool because like sometimes you have an idea and you capture it that day. And then obviously if you want, you can put it up on SoundCloud immediately. But sometimes, and I would probably say more often than not, songs start with the little simple, dumb, horribly out of pitch voice memo to yourself. And then you forget about it. But maybe it lingers. And then a couple years later, you decide to actually try to write some lyrics to it and then what's crazy is it took five years from that voicemail memo for it to be a completed song in the world on an album little uh, slice of life there for you <laughs> i like those so why did you choose this sort of sound because at that time i mean i don't know if too much like throwback kind of retro sounding stuff was in maybe it was um but like why why is that the sound that comes out of you well that's a great question i think that at that time, this was 2012 when the album came out. That voicemail from 2005, notwithstanding, I started, those songs had started in 2008. At that moment in the world, there was, you're right, probably not a big synth explosion. Synth, synth pop, I guess, is the genre. Synth pop wasn't like high on the like priority list for most of the world, but as you know, there's lots of little pockets of underground synth pop lovers. Do you know the band Freeze Pop? I, I played with them very early on in 2005 or four, maybe. And I just remember they had they packed the room in San Francisco. There were maybe 500 people like wall to wall. And they're super underground, but they have such a, a loyal, rabid fan base. And that kind of was my introduction to there being like this large group of people that in spite of it not being, you know, on the charts necessarily or an easy to find like subgenre on Beatport or there's no Spotify at the time. But synth pop is there's a large group of, as you know, people who love synth pop, who love synthwave. And that didn't just start with the movie with uh, with Drive. It was it's been around at least since that show in 2004 where they packed the elbow room in San Francisco. And I when I when I opened for them in my very earliest 
guys as luxury. So I, I don't know. I mean, like that wasn't an influence. It was like I was already making that music. But I think it was just that we still had our Duran Duran and New Order and Depeche Mode records. You know, we still had our mixtapes with Soft Cell and, you know, like that music has always since it was made in the 80s in the Human League, it's always been around and available. And when you hear it and you're a musician and it maybe speaks to you, you know, you're not going to let popularity and trends get in the way. <laughs> so that's never gotten in my way for sure. To, to my detriment, probably. I've never been terribly good at recognizing, hey, this is what's in now. I should make it. <laughs> that's probably a good thing, though, because like, there's nothing cringier than a mainstream band like changing their sound or image because of a trend, you know, because you can tell when it's not in someone's heart. I think. Yeah, no, I know. I, I, you know, are you do you know Breakbot? It was a couple years old, but when Bruno Mars did a total Breakbot ripoff um, maybe two records ago, and it always seems not only insincere, but also like so blatantly a product of, hey, we wrote this song consciously inspired by slash ripping off Breakbot, but we didn't bother to get them involved. Like it's, I don't know, I'm just making that backstory up. Maybe they did try and do a co-write together but it seemed pretty nakedly cynical like not not exactly a cash grab but like a credibility grab like hey this is cool and underground let's let's borrow it yeah it does feel a little bit dirty when when that happens with a with a huge pop star like bruno mars the fact that 24 karat magic like that's such a crazy zap and roger throwback and it's so loyal and faithful to the sound i mean let's face it like not just that, but the big Mark Ronson one, um, Uptown Funk. That is such a the time homage or ripoff, if you want. It's like it's either the time, the band, the time from Minneapolis, the Prince protege band. Yeah, it's such a like dead ripoff of both of the songs from Purple Rain that they play in that movie. It's kind of like a perfect mashup of the two, but it's also a good song in its own right. So it's really tricky because music is just like it's always based on something else. There's always influences, and it's such a difficult line to find like okay where did they cross the line and it became so much of an homage that it feels like a cynical ripoff and sometimes you can go that far and then keep going and cross over again until like well damn it it's just a good song and i can't deny that it's a good song and for me that's like uptown punk is is like you just can't deny it it's just a damn good pop song yeah i agree i like there's a group i've never had on as guests on this show but they're called ghost house and i immediately thought of them when i heard uptown funk because they're sort of very similar styles But for the most part, I don't usually get that nerdy into music similarities unless it enters into pure ripoff town because I just have so much now. Like my synthwave playlist is about like 30 days long and, and my brain only has like so much capacity. So now I'm just I'm just in it for the cool music and I just uh, pretty much but focus I on what I like. actually coming from a much more pure place and I think that that's healthier and I think better. I think that it's so easy to be cynical especially in internet culture where everyone's like a desktop jockey with opinions that they can hide behind an anonymous screen name and just like shit on everything when they themselves have done nothing. I mean, if anything, the fact that I've made music and I know firsthand how challenging it is to A, make the song and B, get it heard. My end opinion on Bruno Mars and to like,
like synthesize all of the opinions I just flung out there with unencumbered by any real consequence. He's not listening and he'll never hear this. So what is he going to do? Is that I respect him as an artist because his number one artistic framework that he's operating under is entertainer. And at the end of the day, as entertainer, that gives you a lot more license to borrow from what has worked before for other people and repackage it as your own and work with huge producers and, you know, big choreographed song and dance numbers of videos. Like the end game for Bruno Mars is entertainment. If the end game for Bruno Mars was like that he was attempting to present himself as an original artist who's doing work that has never been done before, then I think we would all be in the right to jump all over his ass because that's not what's happening. But that's not how he's, he's not, he's not saying, Hey guys, I'm doing something you've never heard before. He's saying, Hey guys, check out this infectious pop jam and watch me dance to it. And, you know, dress up as Prince on, on the Grammys and play purple rain. Like that's a way different ball game and he's killing it in that ball game. And I can only, I can only respect that, that he is an entertainer. I myself, do not know what the hell I am. Am I an entertainer? Am I an artist? That is, I wake up every day and I'm not really clear. And I think that that's part of my personal struggle is like, I mean, yes, I'd like to make money so that it's sustainable to be a musician, but I also only want to make songs that sound good to my own ears. And that's what's driven me ever since this the last seduction. You know, it's, I've always just been making songs that one song at a time speak to me because it takes a lot of weeks and months and years sometimes to finish. And I have to be really inspired to go back and, and work on, you know, an overdub of a tambourine or a new synth, you know, change the synth patch sound. I mean, I have to be super into it. And that comes from art. It doesn't come from commerce. It doesn't come from, you know, how much money it's going to make me. Well, look, man, speaking of the music, I want to listen to more of it. All right. Good transition. Thanks, dude. I tried to do it earlier, but I, 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 know. I, I, don't, give any space. <laughs> I don't give you any space. I'm going to have more sentences and fewer run on paragraphs. <laughs> I, 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 out, I, I had a great segue after you said that's why I make the music. And I was like, this is where I'm going to jump in. But anyway, look, we're going to listen to this song now called Rosebud was the name of his sled. Good choice. And what I like about this one, and this is just this weird observation I had was, um, do you remember the Tim Burton's Batman? I haven't seen that in a long time. Because the intro to this song, that effect where like the beat and it's sort of like that weird reverb reverse thing or whatever the hell is going on, you can explain yep. after we listen, uh, reminds me a lot of Joker's laughing bag at the end of the 1989 Batman. You know, like Batman shoots his grappling hook and then uh, it wraps around Joker's leg and then the gargoyle and the Joker falls to his death. But when the, when the Joker's laying there dead, he's got this laughing bag and his coat pocket okay. commissioner gordon pulls it out and the bag is just going like really so cool. the start of this song has this sort of like flanging percussion effect and it reminds me of that scene in batman it starts slow and speeds up and what you're hearing is the sound of the beep starting out like at 1 BPM and then gradually getting up to, I forget what the actual BPM is, like 90 or something. But that's really cool that it evokes such a creepy image. Um, that's that's the power of music. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> well, look, let's, uh, let's give it a spin. Uh, this is Rosebud was the name of his sled by Baron Von Luxury.
That was Rosebud was the name of his sled by Baron Von Luxury. And I'm here with both Baron Von Luxury and Luxury right now talking about uh, making music and stuff. And that was uh, a song about death. Mm. There are three songs about death on this record because my friend passed away. She committed suicide and then her boyfriend committed suicide in the same week. You know, that was kind of heavy. So uh, I sort of walked around with that for a couple of years. And um, two of the three songs on the record about them passing away. You, I guess the first one, well, I guess the last seduction's not really directly related, but certainly that last song is just about how they uh, kind of left me with all these questions and not a lot of answers and how, I mean, it's pretty explicit in the lyric, but just how haunting it is that like, especially listening back to the song all these years later, like I'm getting older, but they'll never not be the age they were when they died. I mean, I still, they're frozen in my memory. You know, they were older than me, but now I'm older than they were when they died. And that's just so crazy. And hearing the song again evokes that in a really powerful way. So it's cool for me even you know sometimes when you make a song you never need to hear it again because you've been living with it for so long but it's kind of a cool feeling to rediscover these songs after not listening to them myself for so many years i'm quite proud of them and they still kind of hold that magic for me personally as their creator they still have mystery well, it's good that you were able to channel something so dark into such an upbeat album. Without you explaining the context just now, I would have never felt that because I found the music in conjunction with, you know, your image because you have a fun image, you know, with the hair and the suit and stuff like right. I just got the impression that this is like this is a fun guy and he's having fun, you know, making tunes. And like I've talked about the Bee Gees a bunch lately and how I love their early stuff like from the 60s yep. because it's this pop music that often deals with depressing or sad subject matter, but it's presented in a cheerful way with like the harmonies right. they sing and stuff. And so maybe there's a little bit of that going on with what you do. And I mean, with the Bee Gees, I mean, that's what I loved about them. Yeah, I mean, I, I love that too. And that, that was definitely conscious for me of balancing all the stuff out. To me, the masters of that are the Smiths. I think that like Morrissey's lyrics and Johnny Marr's songwriting, and it took me, I was not a fan for a long time. It took me a while to get into them. I was actually a little off, put off by some of the image stuff. And when Morrissey opens his mouth, he can say a lot of offensive things. But this, the music is so joyful and upbeat generally. And then his lyrics are so dour and ridiculous. But together, the marriage makes for a far more interesting kind of music when there's just two different opposing emotions going on between the music and the lyrics. It, the synthesis of those two things is really, really powerful. So for myself, it was absolutely conscious to have the songs be kind of cloaked in a seductive package, if you will, between the cover art with the topless girl in the pool and the eagle landing on my outstretched arm and the name. I mean, it was all... <laughs> The word calculated isn't quite right, but it was a balancing act. I didn't want to have like a black cover and I didn't want to call it Teresa died and so did Jeremy. That would be a bit on the nose, you know? The goal was definitely to have it be um, more along the lines of the Smiths. I mean, that's certainly a tall order to fill. I'm not comparing myself in any way to Johnny and and Steve and Patrick. But, um, but they, to me, do are, are certainly the gold standard of how when you are making music, it's not just how it sounds. It's, it's a marriage of all the parts. It's what the 
Oh, and let's not forget the song titles. I love the Smiths and their crazy long song titles. I know this is a synth podcast, so maybe it's heresy to be talking about maybe the most anti-synthy band that I can think of from the 80s. But the Smiths really mastered the art of having how the music sounds, the lyrics, the singing style, the visuals, like all of that together as a marriage is a really powerful statement that's incredibly unique and that any one piece, if you took away this, the crazy long song titles, please, please let me get what I want this time. Like if you took any one of those things away, it would be it would be different. It would change the balance of, of the overall package. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's one of the key components to the synthwave scene is the artwork, you know, especially for those artists who create instrumental music, you know, sometimes the cover art and the song titles is all you have to guide you into the intended experience, right? You know, because you can listen to an instrumental album and think, hey, this would be a cool you know, detective crime soundtrack and then look at the song titles and find out that it's a science fiction story. So that's why the artwork, that's why the whole package is so important. But with like the synthwave scene in general, that overall package is also about, you know, evoking nostalgia. And and when you talk about, you know, the Smith lyrics and stuff, uh, what I like about stuff from the 80s is there was like an earnestness and it was less ironic. Right, of course. And I personally prefer that to say like, you know, the 90s where it felt like things became more you know, edgy and it, it wasn't cool to like, you know, the simpler boldness and fun of the 80s. Yeah, I mean, it's it's tricky. Everything is a product of its time. I think if New Order or Depeche Mode or Duran Duran came out now, they would have to be different. They couldn't be what they were then. At the time, they were operating in an environment which was, as you say, it was pre-irony. I, I think that things being ironic, I think, came about culturally. I think you're right. In the 90s, it started to be more of a like of a ubiquitous thing. I think that there were there's always been irony and there's always been ironic people and ironic publications and films. But as a more of a mainstream phenomenon, it definitely came into being more in the 90s. And, and now we sort of take for granted irony is just like everything's referring to something else. And I think that's because there's far more of a sophistication to your average person. You can kind of assume that somebody has seen more, listened to more, heard more. So if you're making a song or a movie or a book, you've got to take into account that you've got to be breaking some new ground. You've got to be, you can't just be making something without an awareness of what's come before it in a way that I don't think historically we had to the same degree in the 80s. So case in point, like if you watch any movie from the 80s or even from the early 90s, like check out how slow it, it's, it's, it feels. The editing back then, the pacing was like glacial compared to today. I mean, we take for granted post MTV editing to be cut, 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 cut. But that's the result of it happening on MTV, it's spreading to commercials, it's spreading to film. Our general visual sophistication is such that we expect quick cuts. So all this to say that you really, I don't think, can make the same kind of earnest synth pop that could have existed in the 80s now. It just, it doesn't work. You have to have more layers. You have to have more of a wink to what came before and an, an acknowledgement of that. It makes it more of a challenge to the creator to recognize your audience's sophistication. I don't think I even have a thesis there. I'm just No, 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 you're right. And I agree with what you're saying, but I do think that there is a hunger for the sort of purity of earnestness now. You know what? The, hold on. I want to I want to yeah. I want to build on this, but I want to listen to another song. Okay. It's song time. I want to listen to this track called That Disco Beat. Dig it. By Baron Von Luxury. <laughs> Thank you. 
was that disco beat by baron von luxury and i'm here with luxury right now blake here i am and uh, you were just talking before the song about how you know modern entertainment is more referential as the perceived sort of audience sophistication kind of grows uh you know and, and we talk about this a lot on the show because i find how referential and meta movie entertainment is kind of annoying like some parts are good like if the audience is hip to science fiction ideas and concepts, you know, like time travel and parallel dimensions, you know, for example, then you don't need to spend one hour explaining it and you can move the story along. But there's part of me that also misses that earnestness of just telling a fun story because then you you couldn't do Back to the Future now without someone going, hey, this is like Back to the Future. And there's so many movies that I see and TV shows that do that. Like every time they introduce a concept, they reference the movie that it's similar to. Yeah. Part of me just goes, ah, just tell the story. Like just do a story. I like when I watch Back to the Future. I, I never question why is Marty friends with this old man? You know, there's so many things that you don't question because the movie just <laughs> presents this shit to you at face value right and i'm done with the sort of the meta everything and the winking to camera like i appreciate that it's okay and kind of comedies but right. at the end of the day sometimes when i watch things i'm just kind of like just fucking just do it like just tell the story like if there's a robot who's talking you don't have to be like hey man this is like transformers like just no it's fine he's a robot that you know like, it's it's fine like i get it we all get it unless people are worried that they think people are going to think they're stealing an idea but at this point it's like a lot of things have been done so we can just sort of assume i don't know i think it's interesting i'm thinking i have a lot of thoughts as you said that specifically about the density like if you're writing for comedy or for sci-fi those are two genres for example or horror those are all genres that anyone in 2019 who's working in those fields who's like a writer or a director or whatever in, in some capacity in a genre you know comic book superhero like by definition in 2019 to be doing that you have to be really really incredibly sophisticated and steeped in knowledge about what's come before because the expectations are so high whether it's because of you know fanboys on the internet fangirls in any of those genres you're gonna get there's a, just such a high level of expectation and it would be frankly embarrassing for you to like not catch a reference to X or to, you know, maybe what happens, and this is just speculation, is that sometimes on these TV shows, I don't know, I don't know why I'm picking on Bob's Burgers, but like 
you're going to find or um, or any of those uh, American dad or or there's always like kind of they cut away to something super referential and super clever. But it's almost as a way of saying to the audience, hey, we also know as much as you do. And in fact, we're one step ahead of you. And maybe that feels a little bit tired to me, too. I feel like I've seen that so many times. Well, they'll, you know, or, or what was that show? The Dan Harmon show about Oh, community, like yes. incredibly funny show, but like almost every episode had 50 winks to the audience about how bloody clever the writers were. And I always enjoyed it because it feels sort of conspiratorial that you share that knowledge with the writers and the actors. But that feels so of a moment that we must be on the verge of a breakthrough of, as you're saying, like of earnestness, like I feel like everyone must be getting a little bit tired of that because it's just we've seen it so many bloody times. We're getting to the point where the next type of superhero movie will have zero references to anything else. Maybe it doesn't need to be connected to all the other Marvel movies. Maybe there doesn't have to be the cameo by a, a third, you know, a, a C-level character from Black Panther in the next. Yeah, I totally agree. You know, I think what Marvel has done with the cinematic universe is definitely like an impressive thing. Thing as a whole, right. but my favorite superhero films are still the standalone ones, you know, that came before. You know, like, when everything is interconnected, it's neat, but it can make the individual parts uh, not as effective on their own. Right, right. And uh, and at the same time, since everything is so meta and, and referential, the movies are they're like too long and they're like jam-packed and they can almost be uh, overwhelming. I'm going to loop it back to the Bruno Mars thing because you can put on your critic hat and I agree with everything that you've said like and we're both kind of I think circling around this idea of like well look is it time for is it time for a change is it time to sort of maybe flip the pendulum flip the pendulum no whatever the expression (laughs) (laughs) is for the pendulum to go the other way to swing the other way and like Maybe we can slow things down and be less referential because sometimes it feels like a crutch and sometimes it feels played out. So there is that question. And then putting on the pure audience hat, it tends to get me every time. Like, I do find it funny. Like, I do find references do make it work. I think it's just like human nature. It's like in in the comedy world, right, in improv, not something I'm an expert in, but I, I happen to love improv. So I watch a lot of it. And, you know, I took one class and was terrible at it. But the point is they teach you things about like callbacks, right? And all a callback is, is something that happened earlier in the scene when you mention it again it's really funny just because you remember it was from before mm. and that isn't even a cultural reference it's just a reference to what happened in that room with those 30 audience members because you said the word apple five minutes ago and you're saying apple again and that's called a callback and everyone's like ah ha 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 because they remember it from before so it's obviously built into our human nature for something that's familiar to make us go oh i recognize that and sometimes that's all you need to get a laugh and maybe that's okay i mean maybe there's nothing there that we need to fix maybe there's nothing quite broken there is a very early greek writer who has the very principles of drama and comedy that we to this day are still employing it hasn't really changed that much and maybe that's okay maybe we don't need to fix something that isn't broken about what connects with an audience and makes them amused but as critics of 
music or film or whatever, you know, it's very easy to put on our critic hat and be like, oh, there's too much of this. They need to stop. Why don't they do something new? So I'm torn between both living in both worlds. Yeah, I'm like that for everything. I'm like, I'm not a wishy-washy dude, but I'm always split on stuff because I always consider like multiple points of view. You know, like I can watch yeah. someone give an impassioned speech and, and I'll be like, well, that makes sense. And then I watch someone give a passionate speech with the opposite opinion. And I'm like, yeah, that makes sense. You know? Yeah. And even now, like everything I just said to you is true. Like I am done with, you know, meta jokes and callbacks. But yes, yeah, sometimes they they are fun and they do make me laugh. Yeah. So, you know, who knows? Maybe it's not so much the jokes themselves, but just how well they're implemented. You know, like maybe I've just seen too many movies lately where the callbacks were too obvious and I'm just, you know, used to the style. But it is a matter of the mechanics of how you set it up. And if it's sloppy or if it's like ham fisted and, you know, if there's like a neon sign sort of pointing you to the thing that's going to be, then sure, of course, that's that's poorly done. The end. A well written and well crafted and well directed and well acted film will have you not noticing it at the time or not you know, maybe it's a misdirect. I don't know. There's obviously, it comes down to the execution though. I think the actual principles behind it though are thousands of years old and and I don't know that they are going to change anytime soon. Well, you know what we should do soon is listen to some more music. <laughs> Let's do it. Let's do it. Because you said the word soon. You see, that's my awesome uh, segue. But look, let's do it, all right? This is an awesome track by Baron Von Luxury. This is Women of a Certain Age.
that was Women of a Certain Age by Baron Von Luxury, and I'm here with Luxury right now, Mr. Blake Robin. I love all these choices you're making because that was one of my favorites. In fact, the, the album title was originally Women of a Certain Age, and then I pre-announced it in some way because it was going to come out on Manimal. So I think Manimal sent out an early press release, and we got a takedown notice because they're a group of women in, I think, Seattle. And I don't mean any disrespect, but they are of a certain age, which is to mm-hmm. say, you know, perhaps 60s, maybe 70s. And they have a group and they had a couple of musical compositions of their own called Women of a Certain Age. And I think they had found a way of copywriting them or they did something in a legal what? sense with that. I know it's crazy. And they, they had a lawyer send Manimal a takedown notice and say, you can't put out an album called Women of a Certain Age, which by the way is total bunk. Titles are fair game. There's no legal case to be made that you can't put out uh, a song or an album with a title of, of even a movie. Anything's fair game. I mean, fine. Maybe if you called it the Mickey Mouse album, Disney might give you a little grief. But for the most part, it's not the case. And anyway, we were told that we can't use women of a certain age because of a group of women in Seattle. So if you want to Google them and hear their version of that song, (laughs) do you want to talk about Ernest? It is very sweet. I'm not going to be a jerk about it and say anything cynical or disrespectful, but it is very different. (laughs) Well, maybe we should look it up and do a synthwave cover. (laughs) But anyway, uh, you know, lyrically, uh, you talked about this sort of darkness of the album, but this one seems not that dark what's this one about this is a song about a girl i met on a rooftop and uh i had to not go down the path she was leading me down because i'm a faithful man but it did turn into a nice song (laughs) yeah yeah uh you mentioned the manimal record label that you released under (laughs) have you ever watched the show manimal uh (laughs) i mean i have seen snippets of it my friend paul whose label that is was a big fan. That's why he named it after the show. <laughs> it is definitely some cringy uh, pre-CGI special effects going on when when he turns into the manimal. But I like that it's the same principle as the wolf transformations in like 80s movies, except it's done on a TV budget. Yeah. yeah I think he turns into three different animals because they only made a few episodes, and so they would always find an excuse for him to turn into that fucking Black Panther because like... That was one of the transformations they had filmed. They always cut to the same transformation footage every time. Yeah, it's like Sailor Moon. It's like the same thing, you know, like whenever they transform, it shows like a stock thing that they show every episode. He also turns into an eagle, I believe. And I think he turns into a snake one time. Interesting. Yeah. He's aptly named because he's a man and those are all animals. (laughs) So when you combine the two, it becomes manimal. Let's talk about this for the rest of the show. It's it's called a portmanteau, I believe. (laughs) And since you are in in Canada, but you're not in French Canada, right? Where are you located? I'm in uh, Toronto. There's no French stuff going on there. That's all Quebec, right? Well, Quebec is a predominantly French province, but French is one of the national languages. So there are French communities like all over the place. And we have uh, French and English on all of our product packages packaging and stuff. Okay. But but even if you go to Quebec, like in Montreal, the capital, right. um, I believe is mostly English speaking. Like you can get around fine speaking English. Like, you know, they're they're cool with it. I feel like there's a classic stereotype of Canadians as being nicer, which I have found to be true in my, you know, you seem nice, right? Hmm. Would you say that Canadians are in fact nicer or is that just outwardly so and they just appear nicer? but there's dark stuff going on behind the scenes. Like, is there anything to this 
theory at all? Is it completely easily debunked? Well, I don't know if nicer is the right word. You know, maybe more pleasant, mm-hmm. <laughs> which I think I think comes from our British roots up here. Like, I think Canada has more of a British sensibility, whereas in the States, you know, you have the idea of, like, the American dream, which I think can lead people to be bitter, like, if they aren't achieving it. You know, like, the highs are higher in the States. Right? You can be a movie star, you know, and in, in Canada, you can be on TV and no one gives a shit. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, all the famous Canadians you know... No one gave a fuck about until they got success in the States. So I think when you're not reaching for such highs, you won't be as stressed and maybe more pleasant as a result. Yeah. Um, But then I've met a lot of Americans doing this show and everyone seems cool to me. Well, here's why I asked that a little bit, because one thing as we've been talking, I've been thinking a lot about is like just judgment and how people on the Internet, especially hiding behind an anonymous profile on 4chan or Reddit or, or just on YouTube comments, how easy it is to just have a fucking mean comment. Oh, yeah. Just to spew bile and to have it come from a place of anger or frustration or fear or whatever it is. And maybe it's because I'm hearing myself talk about Bruno Mars and I just want to be careful to not be a cynical person who has an opinion that is just like overly negative or that is like, you know, not taking into account that other people can like something and that the actual inherent goodness of an artistic product has a lot of integrity and it doesn't matter how many people throw crap at it if it's well made and well liked then that to me is its value in the world so bruno mars has value in the world the end so i don't know i just that idea though of like internet haters when when i put the canadian versus american lens on it my instinct is that yeah canadians probably have fewer nasty youtube comments yeah, well, we have our fair share of jerks. Like, and obviously the internet like amplifies that. Mm-hmm. But I think there are reasons that maybe Canadians aren't as high strung or something. And, and I personally believe that the healthcare system has something to do with that because it's something we don't stress about in the same way. Right. I guess like I have dental insurance through my wife's employer and I'm so glad I don't think of my health the same way I think about my dental. Yes. You know, because, like, I had to get a fucking root canal this year, and that basically used up, like, all the insurance for the year. And now there's other dental shit I need to do that I'm intentionally delaying because I can't pay for it. Of course, and I yeah. believe that if you have, like, a medical issue that is a significant, you know, like, financial weight on you, right. that's always going to be in the background. I think that's really insightful. I think uh, something is not small, small, but, like, that one tiny bit of your consciousness that is devoted to thinking about what to do if something goes wrong with your body. You know, you're thinking about money, you're thinking about where you're going to get lunch. All of these things combined are, you know, little tiny worries, little tiny anxieties. But that one is, you know, clearly bigger than the lunch one. But you have all these kind of dangerous scenarios that your subconscious is like a little bit working on. But that one, if I fall and hurt myself, I don't have to overthink how much it will cost me is probably contributing to your peace of mind in a disproportionate way. And it's really interesting because you're right. I think if you have enough of those going on, like if that plus a, a good event at work, you know, where you're feeling confident about your money flow for the next few months, plus your happy marriage, like all these things do add up to probably a generalized level where your pleasantness 
probably becomes more consistent. Healthcare is very expensive for me, and the monthly fee that I pay is insane. <laughs> and I do have to think twice about whether I'm going to go to the doctor to get this dealt with, or should I just buy something over the counter and see if it got worse in six months? I do have to consider that. That does rise to the level of a generalized little anxiety piece in my mind. So, you know, all of these balance out combined with each other, but that's one piece that you have as an advantage over me as a Canadian. Yeah, there might be some truth to that. But look, before we get too into the weeds here, I want to uh, <laughs> I want to take us back to the music. Okay. So why don't you tell me about the track I Need You? So that one is a uh, another honest tale of being alone on the road and when you're traveling by yourself and performing as a DJ or whatever, then there's all kinds of trouble you can get into because people offer you all kinds of stuff and um, drugs, drugs, any, you know, you name it. <laughs> when you're in the nightclub at two in the morning and everyone's drinking and doing drugs and you're providing the music, then you're in kind of a exalted position. And sometimes the best thing to do is just grab your bag and leave the club immediately. <laughs> you know, that's actually one of my coping mechanisms sometimes. I remember writing that song in, I think I was in London and uh, just kind of experiencing the floating far from home and you know, missing my family and feeling like, you know, which reality is the real one? The one I was just in last night and four in the morning and thousands of miles from LA and, or, or is it the one with, you know, I'm looking out the window right now into my backyard on a beautiful LA day. Like is, are they both real? Is only one real? And just kind of experiencing that floating feeling of, of being far from home in both physically and, and mentally and clinging to something, clinging to something in that moment. Yeah. Well, look, let's listen to it, man. This is I Need You by Luxury.
And that was I Need You by Luxury. And I'm here with Luxury right now, Blake. And uh, before we played that track, we were just talking about the different dispositions of Americans and Canadians. Uh, But I think we're all sort of the same when it comes to social media, you know, and the internet, because that seems to bring out the the nonsense out of people. The internet, I've I've known the internet since it was born, as, as I'm sure you have. It's always been predicated on these ideas of like free speech, not free beer, like all of this stuff. It's time for a rethink, because to me, one of the fundamental early internet things has always been about like free speech and just the ability to hide behind anonymity. These same people that anonymously remove from reality, from the actual consequences of what they're saying, feel complete freedom to say whatever they want in whatever tone they want, because there's no repercussion. There's no consequence. And by the way, if they were saying it to that same person in person, you immediately see the humanity kick in and empathy and finding commonality. And then you may walk away with differences on certain topics, but there's not the hatred and the you're an idiot and you're stupid and you're stupid and you're crazy. You're crazy. Like, and I don't know. I, I don't know if I have a singular thesis that anonymity, getting rid of anonymity would solve all our problems, but I certainly think reconsidering. Well, I think I know how to solve the world's problems. Oh, well, okay. But it's a thing that can never happen because oh. they would never agree to it because it would involve big companies doing a very bold thing. So number one, there needs to be a social media reset and we need to enter a generation of like social media too. now that we all understand the implications of it. Yeah. So there should be a day and this will never happen, obviously, because then they lose all their fucking tracking data and all this shit they have on us. But there should be a day, Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, whatever. They say, guess what? On January 20th, everything gets deleted. Everything. All of it. (laughs) Now, you have full right to re-download all of your stuff, and you can upload it the next day if you want to. But you know, going forward, this is how social media works. We understand the implications of it now. We understand that if you say a fucking silly joke, that in 10 years' time, someone might use that against you, and you might lose employment or something. Now you know that. Now we know the rules. Because, you know, there's a point in time where, you know, people are just posting things, and you don't realize that, hey, maybe like seven years from now, this is going to bite me in the ass. We've been learning this thing as it's been going. And now we sort of understand it more clearly. And I think everyone deserves a chance to reboot. And look, the next day, say you're like a huge popular podcast or something, you know? So say you're the fucking Joe Rogan, you're getting like millions of hits. So yeah, the next day you can re-upload everything. But it's now your conscious choice to do that, knowing what that means. I think that everyone sort of deserves this sort of reset and a chance to maybe rethink who they are online. You know, maybe they were a bitter, angry person and they had this second chance to be like, maybe I'm not going to be that person anymore. Because I still don't know about the the anonymity thing. That's a tricky one because I like anonymity for certain things. Like, I I don't like that Facebook and all these things, like, mine all of our data and (laughs) sell it to people. Like, that's kind of weird. Well, no, those are two different things. I don't mean the anonymity behind the scenes. I guess I mean, use your name. If you're brave enough to have an opinion, be brave enough to have an opinion that you are saying because you are that person saying it. Yeah. Be, I mean, that would stand for me too. Look, I mean, luxury is not my real name. So if I what? were this, I wanted to drop that <laughs> bombshell exclusive with you here first. <laughs> 
things are very different in person because there's a consequence, there's an empathy, there's a natural humanity that takes over when you're speaking to someone face to face, even on a hot topic. And by the way, so much of the hate and outrage is so disingenuous. It's smarmy. I mean, so much of what 4chan culture is, is like, look how disassociated from caring I am. It's this nihilistic sense of like, you know, if you care, then you're stupid and you're an asshole and you deserve to die. That's so nihilistic. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you that 4chan culture is, like, shitty, but, like, I think that's the point. Like, it's literal shit posting. I agree. And the problem I've seen is that people have been taking these things, like cartoon frog memes and stuff, like, too seriously, and it's almost embarrassing and makes the journalists and stuff look like idiots or naive because it's like they don't understand that it's a joke, which leads into, like, the political correctness stuff that's been, like, going on lately, where I think there's an oversensitivity happening so to combat hateful or dangerous language but it's too sensitive right now and it's bringing more attention to stuff that we all just could have ignored you know talk about beyond synth we are way beyond synth (laughs) it does not get more beyond synth than this but it's been very interesting but i just wanted to address the the thing with me about political correctness which is an old term it's been weaponized and now when you say it It's a term to be used derisively because we all know that political correct is bad. But at the beginning of its lifespan, when it wasn't bad, when it was a new concept, what it meant was, can you just be sensitive to the other people that you're talking to? And that, to me, is a pretty simple concept. And yes, there comes a point where the linguistics of it becomes sort of absurd because it forces you to rethink what you say and how you say it. But that is not inherently a bad thing. That is a consequence of being in society. Like the history of humanity is recalibrating how you think and act because there's other people around. Mm. Their response is important to you. Their feelings are important. You may want a job from this person that is feeling not included because you used an expression that made her feel alienated. It just gets really perverted past the point of what it originally was intended to do which was to make you as the speaker pay attention to your audience. That's it. Just be aware of how people are perceiving you. And by the way, it benefits you to do so. Yeah, you're right. And I mean, okay, to clarify, when I complain about political correctness, because in all honesty, I do complain about it, uh, it's those instances where people use it as a weapon. You know, where they purposefully and willfully, you know, misunderstand your intent in order to, like, slander you and stuff. Like, we're all human beings, And we make mistakes, and sometimes you can say something where you've used some inappropriate or outdated terminology, but it wasn't your intent to hurt or upset anyone. Like, it doesn't mean you're a bad person, and it bothers me when I see people taken down when, you know, they just slipped up, and that's all it was. I thousand percent agree with you. There's a really great, do you know the podcast, uh, Good One? It's really great. It's uh, Jesse David Fox. It's basically a deconstruction of a single joke. So he interviews one comedian about one joke, and then it turns into a long discussion of what comes naturally as they start talking. And the latest the episode I just heard that, that you're making me think of is with um, a comedian named Rhea Butcher, and she talks about how complicated this stuff is in a really sharp and smart and like really honest, refreshing way. And the bigger point she makes in the, in the episode is how she has absolutely, to your point, evolved from being angry that somebody would say the wrong thing to her to being like, you know what? The intent was there. This person just wasn't trying to be. It's all about how they're being treated in that moment. And if they say the wrong thing, but their intent was the right thing, that's what overrules 
the wrong pronoun or the wrong sentence is the intent. And I think that most people feel that way. I think that most people can get to that point. But by the way, here's another argument for it being in person or it being with real names. That's much more easily communicated that the intent is good. The nuance of that happens in a personal encounter more than it does in a YouTube comment, oh, of course. more than it does in a Twitter conversation. It's just hard to do it in 280 characters. You know, it's probably not going to happen in, in the digital realm. Yeah, of course. I mean, because like, you can't read people in their body language unless you're actually with them in person. And I mean, like when I talk to people, I course correct like all the time. Yeah. You know, I, I like to joke around and be silly and stuff, but I can see if someone isn't having it and I change accordingly. And like part of that is because I've been misinterpreted lots of time in my life and it's always really frustrating, which is why I'm sensitive to those specific examples right. of political correctness when I see people being taken out of context or even censored. And like online, whenever people get like deplatformed or censored, you know, like like Alex Jones, for example, it just feeds into his conspiracy narrative, you know, like so if you have some conspiracy guy that says like, oh, they're going to shut me down and then they shut him down, you know, it fuels his narrative. And then, like, what do you think his audience is going to think about that? You know, I don't I don't know what you do about Alex Jones. It's a real problem. I think that there needs to be something. The binariness of its free speech. They're on their air. They're off the air. I mean, is it is it regulated? Is it fact checked in real time? There needs to be something that there currently isn't because the binariness of letting him have an unfettered platform or deplatforming him like there's real problems with both of those. If it was framed as speculative fiction, if it was framed in such a way that you have in real time some sort of like fact-checking, PolitiFact, or Snopes, or both, or a third version of that. But let's just say that there was some way to frame it where on YouTube, it was filed under fiction or filed under drama or comedy yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or something, but just not politics. And that was really clearly demarcated and impossible to obscure. And by the way, this doesn't just go for him. This is for all of the disingenuous Twitter trolls. And Yeah, and the thing that sucks is that to combat this problem means that the, the general population that reads these tweets is going to have to be way more literate than they're ever going to be. But then, like, especially with Twitter, like, you have to wonder how many actual people are engaging because... From my experience, and, you know, Twitter would never admit to this, um, like at least 80% of Twitter is bots or promotional accounts and shit like that. Sure. And I've actually like seen on Facebook and YouTube accounts that just say horrible shit. And then if you actually examine the accounts, which I do sometimes, mm -hmm. uh, you'll see that like, hey, this isn't even a person. Yeah. This is just like some robot that says shitty things and makes people mad. And neither Twitter nor YouTube or Facebook, for that matter, have much incentive to clean that up because it just creates more usage and more outrage and it's more more stickiness for the platform. So as much as they claim to be trying to fix the problem, uh, they could try harder. They absolutely could. They could probably even solve it potentially. Dude, I could solve it. All right. Like I've seen enough bot and troll activity to recognize it. And if I worked for them, like I could eliminate tons of accounts. Right. But who knows? Like maybe when it comes to actual real trolls, maybe the solution is just to get rid of comments altogether. You know, I mean, like we obviously survived in a pre-internet world without internet comments. So I mean, like we know it's possible. Or the comments requiring approval or something like that. Yeah, I, I think so. That would help. 
I don't go to a theater and watch a movie and then immediately check Rotten Tomatoes. Exactly. And it's like we're losing our ability to trust our own opinion. I, I agree with you. Yeah, yeah, man. This is some uh, profound shit, but uh, <laughs> we gotta <laughs> we gotta listen to some more music. So let's listen to Take It Slow, and then uh, we'll talk about it. So this is uh, Take It Slow by Luxury. Take it. 
And that was Take It Slow by Luxury. And I'm here with Luxury right now talking about uh, cool tunes and uh, the problems with the internet. (laughs) (laughs) The idea that you dropped that maybe we're ready or due for an internet 2.0, sort of a reset, is I like that idea. I think that that may be also something that is just a general feeling that people have that this has been a real, real learning curve of a, of a few years, especially it seems as though right now there's a, the zeitgeist is, you know, let's really make sure that this internet is working for us as humans. I feel like also as individuals, like the idea of taking vacations where there's no Wi-Fi at the hotel and that's a benefit. That's why you choose that hotel. Like yeah. little things like this kind of are cropping up here and then like cafes that don't let you, that have no outlets so you can't bring your laptop in are becoming more and more of a thing. I think people are recognizing that we all need for our own health and our own sanity and for our sense of community and not despising our neighbors. We need to rethink how we absorb devices and media and interact on these platforms. So uh, whether or not it's a literal reset, I do think that maybe it's in the next decade or so or less. I don't think it'll look like this. I just can't imagine it continuing to look like this. I think it's too understood universally that there's too many things that have not gone the the most positive way. That's why I champion the reset, because it's like, this has been a big experiment that we've been living through. You know, no one knew when we were signing up for Facebook accounts that it's just like, hey, I get to see my friends from high school and see pictures that people are posting. At no point was there this idea that, hey, and maybe people will be able to manipulate elections with this platform. Like, that wasn't an idea. It was like, we're just talking to our friends. And slowly but surely, all of these things, these negative things creep in or like really shitty things like suicide, for example. Like, you know, there have been some studies that show that like the suicide rates are up and a lot of that is to do with social media because of the way that people present themselves online is you present this sort of glorified version of yourself. And it leads a lot of people to feel left out and depressed. If you go online and see that there was a party that happened that you weren't invited to and all the pictures are of everyone having a good time, it it gives this weird feeling of sort of depression and isolation that's actually really affecting people mentally. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Who knew that was going to happen with this fucking thing where you could see your friends from high school? Like, nobody knew. And that's why I think there needs to be a reset because I think it's like, now we know. You know, like we know now what this means. And I think that it would have been nice if we had this education and this firsthand knowledge. I I totally agree. Hey, did you open for Giorgio Moroder? (laughs) Sorry, that was out of nowhere. but I did. So my band, fast forward now past the synth pop era. In the last three or four years, I've been putting out more kind of disco-fied records where it's live bass guitar and Rhodes electric piano and some clavinet. It's it's a lot of the sonics of, uh, of 70s. And, and then I'm singing in a falsetto. I'm doing full-on BG style falsetto vocals and harmony stacks. And Zach, actually, when we go live, when we play live, Zach from DAD, also known as Zach Robinson, who I know you've had on the show a couple of times, and um, he, he did the Cobra Kai soundtrack. Uh, he's a friend of mine, and he plays guitar for me live. So he and I, and a couple, uh, a drummer and a bass player, all hightailed it up to San Francisco to open for Marauder a couple summers ago. That was a really super fun show. Giorgio Marauder being obviously a synth hero. Did Zach tell you 
to get in touch because I remember I talked to him like years ago about this, and he's and he was like, "Oh yeah, I, I play live instruments with like luxury." I'm like, "Yeah, yeah, exactly. you mean fucking luxury like that luxury?" And I was like, "Fucking get him in touch with me." And I love that. Here we are. Yeah. <laughs> all come together. Yeah, yeah. It was him. He he put you on my radar, and and here we are. Yeah, no, Zach's a cool guy. I like him. He's a really awesome dude. Yeah, really sharp guy and really sweet. Who's the other dude? Like in some of your newer videos, there's this other dude there with like long hair. Yeah. Um, so his name is Billy Caruso and um, he is my co-writer. In fact, these songs that are currently the luxury songs that are out now, all of them except I think the last two, he and I started the songs together by jamming in my studio. I would bring a beat up in Ableton, slap the bass guitar on and he would jump on keyboards and we would just see what happened. So the genesis of all those songs was a jam with Billy. And then for the most part, what came next would be mostly me cobbling together a song, turning the jam into finished tracks of music and then writing and singing the top line, etc. But, you know, he also, he was a good friend of mine and we performed together. So yeah, that's Billy. And then of course he is uh, in those videos for Take It Slow and and hold on and I think a couple other ones Take It Slow is a really funny video I like that one with you guys oh yeah. man that's my other favorite video absolutely yeah just deadpan couple of guys in a older married black couple's house of course as happens all the time in real life a couple of white dudes in white suits singing a song while they have breakfast sexily yeah I loved it I love the idea of just like that there is this like the sexual tension between like the the husband and the wife but like they're not really doing anything sexual <laughs> like you know just like the, the looks they're giving each other you feel that certain frisson yeah. underneath the surface don't you uh, <laughs> we should actually just say um before we get too carried away here, that uh, that glass candy song is fun. <laughs> yeah, that's a segue. There were some words, and then there were some different words, and and then here we are. That song is about the band Glass Candy. Who do you know? Those guys, I would assume. Of course, you do. Sure. Chromatics and uh, Glass Candy are both Johnny Jewel products. So Glass Candy, there is this sort of important summer of 2007. That was the year that um, my friend Teresa took her life and then Jeremy uh, soon after that. And that was, I was living in New York. It was just a dark moment for obvious reasons. And um, I discovered the band Glass Candy right around that time. I think I found them on this blog called 20 Jazz Funk Greats, which still exists. I just found, looked, looked for them the other day. It's one of the few mp3 era blogs that you know going strong all these years later they always have really great ethereal synthy stuff and anyway i i just really it can i connected with it for some reason glass candy being the portland band um who do kind of throwback synth poppy disco stuff but it's very lo-fi and very simple and uh, i just found it very appealing so I wrote to them and said I was a fan. And we had an exchange that went on for quite some time. They sent me an acapella of a song and I did a remix for them. And for about a year, we I met Johnny Jewell in I think three cities over the course of about a year, San Francisco and LA and New York. And we just would have long conversations about stuff. We just, really cool guy, we have a lot in common. He'd always give me free records and helped my state of mind a lot. It helped kind of cure me. So I wrote this song as kind of a love letter to them as artists and to just the idea of Glass Candy, which to me in that moment in 2008-ish was just representing sanity, like something to cling to. This 
beautiful, mysterious music that I connected with. So that's what the song is about. And then the video, of course, has nothing to do with any of that. <laughs> a crazy adventure. My friend Brad made this video, and it's probably my favorite video that I have on YouTube. It's a, it's, it involves a, a, an alien from outer space who comes down and attacks me in the desert and then puts me in a space egg and blasts me off into the universe. <laughs> I like hearing it explained. Yeah. <laughs> this fucking space egg. It's a space egg. <laughs> well, let's uh, listen to it. Uh, this is Glass Candy by Baron Von Luxury. Come from out of space 
And that was Glass Candy by Baron Von Luxury, yes. who I've been speaking with all show. But we can uh, probably wrap this up. But did you want to talk about the newest Luxury release before you go? The track, uh, I Want to Be Everything? So that track was um, the last of the batch I wrote with Billy. And it was always it's always been the closing number when we play live because it's such like a big brash bye-bye um, of a song. And I, it's funny because I remember, I don't know if you're going to play that one, but the vocals on that one to me are the most extreme BG I've ever done. And I, I remember first coming up with that vocal line and recording it and then playing it to Billy the next day going, this is kind of insane, right? Like, this is a little too much, right? Because at one point I go, I <laughs> it's like, it's fucking over the top. It's almost like a parody of, uh, of a BG falsetto vocal. And he was like, no, dude, that's pretty good. So that's the value of having somebody else around when you write, when you write songs is like, Sometimes you do stuff and it's either sarcastic or risky or like different from how you do it in a way that's like scary. And it's great to have the feedback of somebody else to go, actually, what you're exploring right there is something we should, you know, let's, let's, yeah, let's go with that. that that's, that's unusual in a good way. Or sometimes it's like, no, that's terrible. Never do that again. So in this case, for that song, we decided to go with it. And like I said, it's like, it's always the closing number and I'm always like crawling on the floor for breath as I scream the final I, 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 eyes at the end of that song. So it makes for a nice dramatic finish <laughs> to an hour of live luxury disco in your face <laughs> with the band. So what's the, um, what's the plan for the future, man? What's coming up for luxury? Well, like I said, the, the reissue is coming out uh, again. Probably it's already there by the time this gets posted. And um, I'll be reissuing over the next year in between new songs as luxury. I'll be reissuing the remixes and the instrumentals. And I have an album that came before the Baron Von Luxury record, which is like ancient history, but I'm excited to bring it back because that also sounds fresh and new to my ears. And that one's a little more electro rock. Yeah, it's got more of a like the faint vibe to it because I was a huge faint fan at the time. And they, they were, I would say that the faint were like my sex pistols. I, I saw them open for No Doubt. I took my little sister to see No Doubt and the opening band was The Faint. Uh, I'm, are you a fan? I don't think I've ever heard oh, The Faint. Oh my God, The Faint. I love them. They're from um, Nebraska. They're from Nebraska, I think. And uh, whatever year that was, 2004, they were wearing black on stage playing synth rock. And it, it was like New Order to me. It was like, wow. It was drums, bass, guitar, synths, and um, super catchy and super dark. Anyway, so my first record is very influenced by that. So that's all going to be happening kind of in the background while I have a whole bunch of new real like luxury. This is the what I've been pouring my heart and soul into for the past year is the new singles. I have one coming out with uh, the lead singer of a band called Escort. Her name is Adeline. That's coming out in May on Kitsune, French label. And I've got a song with Scavenger Hunt, a bunch of other collaborations in the work, something with Gold Room, something with this guy called Major. So yeah, the next year, there could be as many as nine or 10 new singles coming out every four to six weeks if things go according to plan. So lots of new music. I'm excited. Follow me on Spotify, Luxury with Two X's, Instagram, all that stuff. And um, yeah, you'll be the first to hear it. So why, uh, why two X's? Well, three just seemed ridiculous, didn't it? <laughs> too many X's. Yeah, it's a little decadent. Yeah, I went to. I started with three, and then I dialed it back to two. I was like, nah, that's too much. <laughs> All right, man. Well, look, 
Listen, it was lovely to meet you. I think you're you're about to go have lunch with the DAD or something. That's right. I'm going to go uh, get some tacos down the street with uh, with Zach. Say hi to him for me. Maybe I'll text him a stupid emoji of me giving the finger or something. Okay. To let him to let him know I care. That's a great idea. You should definitely do that. Oh, I will. Uh, but look, man, uh, maybe we'll end the show with the track I Want to Be Everything because uh, it's a lot of fun and it was uh, it was nice to meet you, man. Thanks for having me on your show, Andy. Nice to meet you, too. Great chatting with you as well.
And that was my conversation with Baron Von Luxury. It was great to chat with him. This one was actually a tough one to edit together because for some reason we ended up talking for three hours. <laughs> and... <laughs> This one uh, took a while to edit because we ended up having quite a serious discussion and we don't always get so serious on Beyond Synth and so I had to make some edits because I didn't know if you guys would be too interested in our political conversation. But uh, we did have a fun uh, time nonetheless and he makes really awesome music so it was great to chat with him. So look, uh, everybody, enjoy your week. Uh, Tune in later in the week for uh, the Beyond Synth High Five. Don't forget to check out the Outland Toronto Facebook page. There'll be a link to that in the description. And also the Retro Reverb Records thing that is happening. Check out their Facebook page and see that event, because that should be good too. And everybody, have a lovely week, and I will uh, talk to you next time on Beyond Synth, the best synthwave chat show there is. Thanks for If you enjoy the show, please consider supporting it by going to patreon.com slash beyondsynth or visit beyondsynth.com and click on support the show. Beyond Synth is made possible by the awesome Patreon supporters. Don't forget to follow Beyond Synth on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher. Live broadcasts can be heard weekly on Twitch at twitch.tv slash beyond underscore synth. Have a lovely week.